Uh, today I'm, I'm beginning a, a short series um, on Psalm 86. Uh, it'll be four parts. And I'm calling it, as you can see, I think on your screen there, a prayer for desperate times. I don't know how many of you have ever truly been in a desperate situation or experienced a feeling of desperation. I'm sure some of you have in the past. And I imagine that for others of you, the worldwide pandemic that we're experiencing right now has created a desperate situation for you. I know there are some of you who are already unemployed and seeking employment before the virus hit. And now your situation must feel truly desperate because who would hire at a time like this? Others of you might be dealing with the, a fear, a fear that leads to desperation, fear of perhaps contracting the virus yourself or of your close loved ones becoming sick or fear of what the future is going to look like for you. I also know that, that for some of you, this virus and the global economic shutdown is going to have severe financial implications for your future. And when you imagine your future, desperation rises in your heart, and maybe even you feel the effects in your physical body. It's also possible that your future plans are now completely up in the air, and there's no, there's no certainty at all as to when things might return to normal, and what normal will be. One of the most influential and powerful characters in the Bible is King David. And even though he was king, and even though he was a famous, powerful king, he was no stranger to desperate situations, both before and during his reign. And in the Psalms, we have numerous examples of prayers that David wrote out of this desperation. And one of these is Psalm 86 the prayer that we'll be looking at for the next four weeks. There are a few introductory factors that I want you to understand before we begin to examine the psalm itself. First, this psalm was written by an individual in a specific situation. That means that while this psalm can be used in worship and we can pray it for ourselves, it was not meant to apply to all of Israel. It's a personal psalm, a personal prayer. We need to be careful to apply the principles, the attitudes, and the character of God that we see in this psalm, apply those things to ourselves and our situation, but always remembering that David wrote this personally about himself and his situation. The second thing I want you to know about this psalm is there actually is not very many or are not very many original verses in the psalm. And what I mean by that is that there are repeated phrases that you're going to see in this psalm that, you, that will sound familiar to you because they're in a lot of other psalms. So David has taken passages from other psalms and he has stitched them together into this one. I don't want to belabor this point, but it seems that David, just like us, was often praying, asking God for the same things over and over again. And from that, I just want us to be reminded that it's okay to keep praying, to keep asking God for his help. The third thing about this psalm is that it divides easily into four clear sections, hence the fact that we'll be looking at it for four weeks. We'll be looking at one section per week, and this first section which is the first seven verses that we're going to examine today, I am calling a cry 
for help. David has organized this first section into seven couplets or pairs. Each pair has a request followed by the basis upon which he makes the request of God. That's how he has joined them together. So there's a request and then the foundation, like why he's making the request or why he should be heard. And then together, each pair forms a theme. So for each of these couplets, we'll look at three things, the, the request, the foundation of the request, and then the theme that it communicates. Now I understand right now, even though you're at home, and even though you don't have to leave the church building to go home for lunch, you're already starting to get worried. Because if you've been doing the math, you have counted seven things. Okay, so there's seven couplets. And I said for each couplet, we're going to look at three things. That's 21. Okay, so my first statement is it's not going to be an extra long sermon. But the second one is I need you to really focus with me because we will be moving through them quickly. Okay, I'll be reading the first seven verses of Psalm 86. And I would encourage you to please read this psalm in its entirety on your own over the coming weeks, perhaps even several times. And uh, if, if you really want a challenge, memorize it. Memorize this psalm. Psalm 86, verses 1 through 7. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good. O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. David begins with his requests right away in the first verse, the first phrase. The first request is that God would hear him and answer him. The foundation upon which he makes that request is that he is poor and needy. So do you understand how those go together? Hear O oh Lord, and answer me, what's the foundation? What's the basis upon which I'm making that request? Because I am poor and needy. This pairing establishes the theme of humility before God. I think it's often hard, especially for men, to think of ourselves as poor and needy. Maybe not so much the poor part, but the needy part. It's hard for us to imagine us, ourselves, in that light. Maybe that's not the case for you, but I think there's something in most of us that rebels against seeing ourselves as helpless and in need. But that's exactly the way that we are all in comparison to God. We are poor and needy. We're in constant need of his sustenance, his presence, his help, his provision, his salvation. So David begins the psalm recognizing, acknowledging, affirming his position of humility before God. God is great, I am poor and needy. 
The second pairing is made up of the request, guard my life with the foundation, I am devoted to you. I'll let you in on a little preview. David does not actually articulate the reason for his desperation until the end of the psalm. It's in the fourth section, four weeks from now, that we're going to discover why his situation is so desperate. But here he's given us a little preview. Guard my life. So for some reason, David's life is being threatened. This pairing affirms a sense of belonging. And I'll explain why that is. That's the theme of the second couplet, belonging. David says that he is devoted to God. Now, that might seem a little prideful or self-righteous to us. Guard my life because I am devoted to you. But when we read this, don't emphasize the word I or devoted. Emphasize the word you. Guard my life for I am devoted to you. David's stating a fact. He belongs. His life is devoted to God. It's not his, it's God's. So where else would he go to ask for protection? Where does a child go for help and protection? They go to their parents. That's usually their first step, right? Well, do their parents say, well, you know, you're not, you're not mine. Why are you coming to me? Absolutely not. The parents receive that child and provide the protection. Why? Because the child belongs to them. It is not, it is not arrogant of the child to say, I'm yours. I'm yours. It's acknowledging a fact. So if you are a child of God, you come to him already belonging So you are not inserting yourself where you don't belong. David was not inserting himself into a relationship with God that was not real and that didn't exist. When he says, I'm devoted to you, he's making a statement, I belong to you, God. Everything I am, my whole life, I'm yours. Where else would I go for help? Where else would I go? This is the logical place to the one to whom I belong. When you as a child of God Come to the Lord. You do not come to him as a stranger. You do not come to him as an outsider. You come to him as his child who belongs. The third pairing carries the theme of trust. David asks God to save him. Save your servant who trusts in you. So what's the foundation? The way he phrases this one is a little bit different because he puts the the foundation at the beginning and at the end and then sticks the request in the middle. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. So the foundation of the request is Yahweh is his God and that he trusts in Yahweh. Now this coupling echoes the previous one. If Yahweh is David's God, where else would he go for help? To use the parent analogy again, I remember as a kid, I've I've talked about this before, I've used this illustration before, but I remember at this very building uh, as a child, after the service, 
being childlike, meaning running around and playing tag and being chased by friends. And I remember here and a couple times in other locations, remember a, a child's down here, right? So that's their world down here. And they're running around. That's what they see primarily. And I remember being chased by a friend, all in good fun, and grabbing on to my dad's leg, right? Because there was a sense of security and safe. It, was, it wasn't fair in the game, right? You know, when, when a kid's chasing me and I go to pastor, you know, and I hang on to the pastor's leg, what are they going to do? Still come tag me? So it was unfair, I understand. But there were a couple times where I'd grab that leg and just hold on there. And then something didn't feel quite right. And maybe it was the texture or the color of the trousers, of the pant leg. And then slowly my gaze would go up and I realize I am not holding my dad's leg. Maybe it was someone I knew, maybe it was someone I didn't know, but regardless, it was awkward, it was embarrassing, and it was terrifying, okay? Now, I've also been on the other end of that. Right out here in front, not too long ago, one of our children from the church, not my child specifically, our children who are part of this church, um, ran up to me and grabbed onto my leg for all they were worth and just hugged my leg. And inside I felt, this is wonderful. And then immediately thought, this kid has no idea who I am. <laughs> he thinks I am his dad. And that's exactly what happened. The kid looked up and was like, ah, you know, and I said, hey, I said, you can grab my leg anytime you want to. And the kid went, ah, and ran away. <laughs> the point I'm making is, It makes sense for a child to grab their father's leg and to hold on. It would be strange for David to go anywhere else but God. It would be strange for him to go to an idol. Just as it would be strange for a young boy to run and grab someone's leg who was not his father's, to do that intentionally, to see his father and yet to grab someone else's leg. That would be strange. It would be odd. We would say that's weird. That's not normal. So why is it that we think that it's arrogant to say, save your servant who trusts in you? If the Lord, the God of the universe, Yahweh, is your God, then you may freely approach him and trust him fully, even in desperation. The fourth pairing emphasizes persistence. David does not stop crying out to God for help. That's what he said. Have mercy on me, Lord. Why? Have mercy is the request. What's the foundation? For I call to you all day long. His request in this couplet is for God's mercy and the foundation is persistence. I'm calling to you all day long. My wife, Julie, had a, uh, she, a, a kind of a nickname within her family when she was a child. And the truth of that nickname still bears out today. Her parents started calling her, Never Say Die Julie. Now, Why? Because if there was ever anything that Julie got into her mind that she wanted, she would not give up trying to get it. She would never say die. She might retreat 
strategically for a time, but it wasn't because she had given in and it wasn't because she had forgotten. She was going to approach it from a different way a little later on. We might be tempted to think that this kind of persistence would irritate God. Again, because those of us who are parents, um, and even those who are not parents, we do sometimes get irritated when people keep begging and begging and begging and asking and asking and asking for something. But God in his word has challenged us, invited us to be persistent, to not give up in prayer, to persevere. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about this judge And he specifically says that that this judge was not godly and that the judge didn't particularly care about people either. But there was this, this one widow who had a legal case and she kept pestering the judge and she kept coming to the judge over and over and over and over again. And she would not let it rest. She would never say die. She kept coming, kept coming. And finally, Jesus tells the story. He said, finally, the judge gave the woman what she wanted, not because he thought it was just, not because he cared about her, but because he was so tired of being irritated and annoyed and pestered by her case. But the point that Jesus makes from that, he says, so in this parable, if even this worldly, uncaring judge relented because of the woman's persistence, then imagine how your heavenly father will hear and answer your requests. He invites us to come to him. David says to God, have mercy on me, God, and I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I call to you all day long. Brothers and sisters, don't stop praying. In in your desperation, I know that, that there can be times where you just think God has not heard. God is uncaring. I, I, what's the point? Why persevere in prayer? And, and God says to you as his child, don't give up. Don't stop. Persist in prayer. Persevere in prayer. We now arrive at David's fifth couplet. And his request here is that God would bring him joy. And he founds this request on the fact that he lifts his soul up to God. I know that we have talked a lot about this concept in the past, but I think it's very interesting how David phrases this request. When you need joy, or when you lack joy, where do you look for it? So another way to ask that question is, to what or to whom do you lift up your soul? Who do you give your soul to? And there's this this contrast of David seeking joy, needing joy, and lifting up his soul to God, who is the source, the true source of joy. And that word source, right there, that's the theme of this couplet. The source. God is the source. And the contrast, then, would be to lift up our soul to an idol. We, are, we, we, we have no joy. We are lacking joy. And so where do we go for it? Where, who do we offer or what do we offer our soul to in exchange for joy, falsely seeking joy, or rather I should say, seeking joy in the wrong place. Because if we lift up our souls 
to someone or something else other than God, expecting to receive joy, we won't. We might receive a counterfeit, fake joy that, that lasts briefly, but its long-term result will not be good. So if I'm sick, I don't go to the car mechanic, right? I don't go to, to the mechanic and walk in and say, you know, something's wrong with my elbow. You know, every time I bend my arm, there's pain. I hear a clicking or can you take a look at it for me? Of course not. And, and at the same time, if my car is broken down, I don't take it to the pronto-socorro, to the emergency room. If your pet is ill, you don't take your pet to an electrician. If I need joy, I'm not going to find it by sacrificing my soul, by giving my soul to anything other than to God. So in his desperation, David lifts up his soul, meaning he lifts his attention, his ears, his heart, his desire, his soul to God. Because God is the only true source of, of joy. Now, when David gets to the next two couplets, he changes things a little bit in this poem, in this prayer. And he doubles them up. In, in verse 5, he gives the two foundations first, followed by the two requests. So, first, David says, You are forgiving and good, O Lord. So you are forgiving and good. Now that's the foundation for the request. Then we skip down to find out what the request is. David is asking that God would hear his prayer. Hear my prayer, O Lord, for you are forgiving and good. The theme for this couplet is grace. Why grace? Why would God answer David? Why would God hear David's prayer? Now, from a human perspective, we would say, hear my prayer, and then what would be the foundation? Why I deserve for God to hear my prayer. So, why I'm righteous, why I'm good, all the ways that I've served him, all the sacrifices that I've made, that would be the human way to, to ask. Hear my prayer, Lord, because I am your servant, I am good, I've done this, I've done that, I've done everything else. David doesn't say that. He says, hear my prayer because you are forgiving and good. So that is grace. He, he recognizes, David recognizes, that he can't manipulate God into responding to his requests. God will hear him, not because he deserves it, God will hear him because of God's own character. Because God is forgiving and good. It's all about God himself. That is grace. Not me earning it. It's God giving it because of who he is and what he is. And we all spend so much time and emotional effort trying to deserve God's attention. Trying to deserve his answer trying to manipulate him into hearing us. And we'll never be able to accomplish that. We can only receive his grace with gratitude. Hear us, Lord, because you are forgiving and good. There's a, a little 
addendum that I want to add here about the word forgiving. It could be that you are in a desperate situation because of something stupid that you have done or a mistake that you have made or possibly even from some sin. And the implication of David saying that God is forgiving in this context is that even if we are in desperation because of our own sin or our own mistake, our own stupidity, our own foolishness, that does not put us beyond crying out to God for help. If we acknowledge our sin, repent of it, and confess God is forgiving and good. Now, that does not guarantee that God simply removes all of the consequences of that sin or that stupidity, but he does not abandon us to that. I've used the illustration before of a baby who soils their own diaper. And the parent doesn't look at the child and said, you made that mess, you get out of it. The parent steps in, the mother, the father, and cleans the child. The Lord is forgiving and good. That's why he hears the prayers of his children. The last couplet carries a theme of attentiveness. The final combination of faith and foundation highlights God's attentiveness towards his child. David asks God to listen to my cry for mercy. Again, it's another request for God to hear him. And the basis for that request is that God is abounding in love to all who call to him. As with the previous couplet, the foundation for this request is God's character, not my desert, or not the fact that I deserve it. It's not because the petitioner deserves God's response, but it is because God is loving, and specifically loving toward whom? To those who call to him. I'm a parent, and I admit that there are times that I get distracted when one of my sons is trying to ask me something. Maybe I'm on the phone. Maybe I'm doing something else that takes my attention. And maybe sometimes I might even say something to them. I might even answer them, but I'm not really paying attention. I don't really know what they asked. And I'm not really sure that my answer is the right one, but because I'm distracted, I just kind of say something to make it stop. And sometimes kids, oftentimes kids are smart. They can play the system they know if they want to do something that they probably normally wouldn't be allowed to do, if they can get mom or dad when they're distracted, that maybe they'll get them to say yes just to stop the pestering. Dad, 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 dad. You know, what? Can I do something? Sure, go, do it. Yes, fine. And it comes that time in frustration where the parents turn and they say, okay, what do you want? What do you want? Can't you see I'm doing something else? But as we see here, that is never God's response to those who call to him. It's actually the opposite. He is abounding in love to those who call to him. God as father will never ignore his children nor will he be impatient or irritated with us for asking. In fact, according to David in this verse, God's love is specifically directed toward those 
who call to him. So, if you imagine God as frustrated or irritated by your requests or by your cry for help when you are desperate, you have an unbiblical perspective on who God as our Father is. Because God is attentive to his children. And his love is poured out on those specifically who call to him. This first section of the psalm closes with a simple statement that summarizes all of the couplets and affirms David's confidence in God's answer. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you for you will answer me. A more recent edition of the NIV translates it this way, and I like it because it is so simple. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Now again, I want to make sure we emphasize the right pronoun. Emphasize the pronoun you in this statement. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. There are two underlying facts of which David is confident. That God will answer, so that he will provide an answer, and secondly, that only God can answer. When I am in distress, I will call to you. I'm not going to call anywhere else. I will call to you because you will answer me. When in my day of trouble, to you, Lord, I will turn. Now, of course, we all struggle with accepting an answer from God that may not be what or how we want it. Let's be honest with ourselves. For many of us, the issue isn't that we don't trust God to answer, it's that we, we aren't excited about what his answer might be. But what we can take comfort from so far to this point in the psalm is that God will answer and we can take comfort in his character, in his promises. And in the fact, as I already said, that he, there will be an answer. I don't know if you've ever sent an email to someone and you really need an answer about something. And no answer comes. And it may not even be so much that you need a yes or that you need a no. You just need one or the other because some of your plans or decisions depend on that answer. Now, full disclosure, and many of you know this, I have often been, I'm sure, the person causing that distress for you. When you have sent me an email or a text asking me a question, I don't see it, I don't respond right away. I understand, I've been on the other side of it as well in that frustration of waiting for a response and not getting one. God will always answer. Even if his answer is no, or even if his answer is not now, or even if his answer is wait, or his answer may be, you know what, I have something completely different in mind for you. Hang on. It's coming. So in these desperate times that we're living in today, because for much of the world, they are indeed desperate. We approach God in humility. 
but it's a humility with confidence that we belong to him. That we are not outsiders. We approach him with trust and we approach him with persistence. I call to you all day long because he is the ultimate source of joy. He is full of grace, forgiving and good, abounding in love to whom? To those who do call to him. He will listen. He will answer. Thanks be to God.